Welcome to the February interview of Psych Soccer Clock. Today I'm here with Professor Ben Jones, who is a professor in the Institute of Neuroscience and Psychology at the University of Glasgow, and he runs the FACE Research Lab with Dr Lisa Debrin. Hello, how are you? Fine, thanks, and how are you? Yeah, good. Psych Soccer uh, Clock's a good name for yeah, a podcast, thank you. I think. <laughs> Did you come up with that, or was that...? I was, it was the only name that got suggested. It was my one as a joke, but people seemed to quite like it, so... Yeah, it <laughs> um, I've got some icebreaker questions. Uh, Go for it. I think I've got a. I'll do the one I've got prep for. So, what is your favourite love song? That's quite a tricky one because I'm I'm a really big music fan, mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot of a lot of loves a lot of good love songs. Um, I would probably say I like disco a lot, so I would say I feel loved on a summer. Oh, okay, that's yeah. That kind of captures the kind of hedonistic aspects of falling in love <laughs> for the first time or whatever. Yeah. But so then at the other end of the spectrum, there's also things like Small Town Boy by Bronski Beat, which is about a, about a guy growing up gay in a homophobic small Scottish town Wow. Uh, in the 70s and 80s. So that's kind of a love song about about love that maybe not everyone around you kind of gets. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, but it's also quite anthemic and uplifting at oh, the same time. Sounds really beautiful. I think my one is uh, I really like Al Green. Stay with me. Oh, good choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah anything about Al Green's pretty amazing. So, in the Face Lab, what kind of thing does your research include? What do we do? Mm-hmm. Well, most of what we do is is to do with faces, as the name implies. Although we also do quite a lot of stuff with uh, with voices and a little bit of stuff with bodies, mm-hmm. and even some stuff with sort of body odors. Although that's Oh, wow. That's less pleasant and uh, and and harder to do. Yeah. Um, but really, what we're interested in is what kind of characteristics shape first impressions that people form about people. So, how people look or sound or move or smell influence how people think about them when they meet them for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly, a lot of our work focuses on um, sort of romantic attraction or sexual attraction. So what makes certain types of faces particularly attractive and other types of faces kind of relatively, I don't want to say unattractive, but less attractive is maybe the way to say it. Yeah. Do you find that there is an overwhelming preference for a certain type of face in either sex? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that really comes out of a lot of, particularly a lot of the kind of early work um, on attractiveness or facial attractiveness in particular is this idea that there's certain types of characteristics that people find, um, that pretty much everybody finds attractive. Mm -hmm. So a good example of that would maybe be, um, you know, just looking healthy, having a sort of healthy glow Mm -hmm. tends to be, uh, tends to, tends to be more attractive than having the kind of unhealthy looking pallor that, that, that I've developed. (laughs) Uh, but also there's other things that you generally find attractive in, in faces. So most people, generally find uh, that if you you know if you take a woman's face and you exaggerate the kind of female sex typical characteristics of it so you make the chin a little bit smaller you mm-hmm. make the brow um, a little bit smaller you make the eyes bigger and the lips kind of fuller and plumper um, most people will agree that that makes the face look uh, slightly more attractive mm-hmm. curiously you don't seem to see the same thing for male faces, if you exaggerate the male sex characteristics in, in a male face, so you make the brow heavier, mm-hmm. you make the jaw heavier, you make the eyes kind of beadier and a little bit 
more thuggish looking. Uh, you make the guy look much more aggressive and much more dominant looking. People perceive him to be more high status, but women seem a little bit more uh, split on whether or not that makes him more attractive or less attractive. Mm. What is kind of the opinion of women on more feminine masculine faces because i think some people like like the yeah it's kind of the pretty boy kind of yeah you, i mean you, you do sort of see that you see that um you know some women seem to be more attracted to sort of uh, manly looking guys some women attracted to the kind of softer um features of uh you know the kind of uh more of a sort of boy band kind of look <laughs> sort of justin bieber um type look um we don't really know why that seems to be the case. For a long time, people argued that this was to do with changes in women's menstrual cycle, that women would be more attracted, women became more attracted to these kind of manly men, masculine guys um, around ovulation when they're most fertile. Um, that was sparked partly by a really influential uh, paper in the journal Nature by, by one of our colleagues, Ian Pentonvoke, uh, now at Bristol University, but it was work he did when he was at the University of St Andrews. Mm-hmm. Um, more recent work that we've done in our lab with much larger samples. So Ian's original study tested, I think, like 25 women or something. We tested nearly 600 and we found wow. we found very little evidence um, that this was this was the case, um, that, that the type of men that women were attracted to changed mm-hmm. um, over the menstrual cycle in that kind of way. So I think if it does change over the menstrual cycle, it changes really, really subtly and isn't probably something um, something to sort of worry about or, or, or think about too much. I think in the past, the influence of these kind of hormonal effects has been really overstated. Mm-hmm. Um so that sort of brings brings you back to the question of what uh, why some women are attracted to to very masculine guys and um, other women are attracted to more sort of feminine guys. Yeah, we don't really know. It could be to do with experience. Um, the curious thing about it is it doesn't seem to be specific to just faces or even just vision. So we've done work where you know we assess women's preferences. This was done with straight women. Mm-hmm. Um, assess women's preferences for masculine characteristics in men's faces masculine characteristics in men's voices so we can raise the pitch or lower the pitch to make them sound more or less masculine mm-hmm. um, and also use these synthetic pheromones which are uh, sort of chemicals that people produce in things like body odor um, and there's some of those pheromones that men produce in in greater quantities or greater concentrations than women do um and they kind of really smell like boys, actually. Like it, they, they have a very strong, pungent smell. Like a like, teenager's room or something. Yeah, like yeah. sweaty socks. Nice. We, we asked people. So, so we, and we used those to assess preference for sort of masculine odours. And what we tended to find was that, you know, the women that really didn't like the masculine odours also didn't like masculine faces or voices. Okay. The women that were... We didn't find very many women that liked the, the sort of smell of sweaty boys' rooms, but uh, the ones that were more tolerant of it tended to be the ones that, that liked the masculine. So there's clearly almost something like a kind of, almost like a personality trait. Um, yeah. The amount that women are attracted to kind of masculine guys in general. Um, and we've seen some hints in, in our work that that might be to do with uh, sort of learning parental learning parental characteristics or paternal characteristics or it might just be to do with kind of everyday experience um 
But yeah, it's one of the things that we're really struggling to sort of wrap our heads around and, and, and find out. And that's despite having looked at it for, for nearly 20 years now. Yeah. Um, but the one thing we're pretty sure of now is that it's probably not hormones, which has been the dominant kind of theory. Right. That one seems to have uh, crashed and burned. In some ways, I mean, that's it's very exciting that you've been able to find evidence that it's something but I guess it also makes the search so much wider now because you don't know yeah everyone's been focused on this kind of one this one kind of silver bullet answer yeah. that was was hormones and it, it but and, and it doesn't seem to be on the plus side I think it is quite nice that I, I was getting as someone that had been involved in so much of that work I was getting really fed up seeing it portrayed in the media for example as you know hormones make women indecisive and, mm. and things like that so it's been nice to uh it's been nice to kind of scotch that idea and yeah send that crashing and burning what kind of questions do you ask about uh rating attractiveness do you tend to ask ones which look at more short-term attraction rather than long-term relationships it really depends i mean you tend to find in some of the work we just ask about sort of attractiveness mm-hmm. you know how attractive do you think this person is on a scale of one to seven say um, and there, there's a bunch of kind of interesting things that we find with that. So, first of all, you know, straight women, gay women, tend to rate men's attractiveness in much the same way when you use those sorts of tests. Okay. Um, and also other other guys, even straight guys, also tend to rate guys' faces in much the same way. So I think there's there's an aspect of when we're just sort of rating general attractiveness that seems to be um, sort of dumb to our you know, sexual tastes or sexual orientations. Um, and also, we also, and it might be tapping something more fundamental about, like, you know, whether or not you think the person's nice or fair or trustworthy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also tend to find that if you give people, so you know those sort of tasks you can give rats or train monkeys to do where they'll press a button for food, press mm-hmm. a lever for food or, or drug reward or something. Well, we find that uh, we can not train people, but people will expend effort, they'll work, they'll press buttons um, to look at faces that they think are attractive. Mm-hmm. And also they'll look at... they'll So they'll press buttons and they'll work to keep those faces on the screen mm-hmm. and they'll or they'll uh, press buttons and exert effort to get rid of faces that they don't like the look of. Um, so there's definitely something kind of meaningful that those attractiveness ratings are, are tapping. But in other work, we do sort of separate it out when we're looking at um, sort of specifically at sort of sexual attraction. And we do sort of separate it out into sort of long-term attractiveness. Um, and it's a bit of an artificial distinction, but but it does seem to map on to sort of real-world outcomes. But, uh, you know, how attractive do you think this person is for a long-term relationship like cohabitation? Mm-hmm. How attractive do you think this person is for something like a one-night stand or... Uh, you know, or a one-off date or something. Um, and there you do sort of see um, different patterns of results. So coming back to your earlier point about masculinity, femininity, you know, women tend to show slightly stronger preferences for masculine guys for uh, one-off dates, casual sex, things like that, mm-hmm. um, but prefer relatively feminine guys for, for long-term relationships. And we've seen some evidence that that, does map onto sort of uh, real-world partner choices. Oh, okay. That's really interesting. What kind of thing would you recommend in terms of... Because uh, lots of students use dating apps, mm. uh, like Tinder, for example, where you have 
that initial first impression picture. So I was wondering if you had any advice for people about what you should have as your first picture that people see. I think a lot of it's to do with... I mean, it's easy to think of lots of things that you shouldn't do. <laughs> uh, but uh, ha- having, having, I've never used Tinder, but having seen some of the photos uh, when other people have shown me, and you're kind of like that one's mm, what, like difficult to see what. Yeah, 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 difficult to see what that person was thinking. <laughs> I think like there is a big, a big part of it is sort of standing out, um, and also obviously sort of being yourself and things. In terms of sort of online dating profiles was actually we've actually just finished a project looking at um it just came out a couple of days ago looking at uh what sort of things people say um in dating profiles in general okay online dating profiles and looking at um and looking at that and also looking at what sort of things people respond positively or not positively to um and one of the things that we found that people both men and women responded quite negatively to when men and women mentioned it was sex, which kind of was kind of surprising in a way. But if you mention sex in your uh, in your profile, then then that's that's you can imagine it. You can stereotypically you would imagine it would be a turn off to women mm-hmm. looking for a guy. But I think one of the things that we were quite surprised by was that that, that guys also responded to that uh, so negatively. That was quite surprising. Mm. Is it goes, just when it's explicitly stated, or is yeah, it I think subtle? it's like I think if it's yeah, I think exactly. If you're a little bit more nuanced, or or I nearly said underhand, that's not quite what I mean. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think if you're a bit more subtle about it, then then maybe it's a different thing. But I think it's just one of these things where you're kind of like for both sexes, like that's immediately setting alarm bells off right because uh, i thought that was kind of interesting yeah definitely especially considering because i think supposedly there are different dating apps for different purposes and yeah. tinder is meant to be quite a one-night stand hookupy one mm-hmm. so did you look across different dating so it, no but that would be really cool to look at that yeah yeah, yeah. um that would be really nice and one of the de- actually one of the problems that we had with that project was that the to get ethical approval for it we can't divulge what um what platform it was that we were using. Ah, okay. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's uh, that, that that would be a great thing to look at in the future. Yeah. I always find it interesting, I think, like you're saying, when it's a more unique profile on um, Facebook and the internet, it's very jokey, quite, in some ways, nerdy profiles become very popular because people really like to see something a yeah. bit out there. Yeah, certainly humour came across came across humor came across as one of the things that people gen generally responded quite and and it didn't even i think that was the thing i was quite struck by was it didn't even need to be a successful attempt at humor I right think it just needed just trying to be funny oh, was okay. uh so i thought that was that was that was quite sweet really yeah that's nice did you look at um opening lines as well no we didn't actually that'd be interesting to look at what what people say where people yeah it was a kind of automated text analysis thing that we used um so uh yeah, but now now that we've now that we've run the, the the sort of bottom up analysis, it would be cool to look and see at what you know. Do people put their best foot forward, or yeah, that would be really interesting. Yeah, I think uh, a quite successful successful one that one of my friends uses is she'll ask. It will be like a common debate, so like cats or dogs or something like that, ah, yeah. to try and get people talking in a non. Not non-threatening, but kind of a, an easygoing, but still quite interesting topic. Yeah. So I've been I've been married since online dating really took off. So I haven't used I was going to say I haven't used it much. I haven't used it at all. <laughs> um, but uh, 
Well, obviously lots of my friends do. And I, I'm just always appalled at just how bad some of them are at it. Mm. You know, like uh, I was out with a friend, this was over in Canada, out with a friend for brunch and we're having a very nice brunch. He's texting with a woman that he'd met through an online dating app and what was it she said? She said, um, she said, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm here. Uh, I'm just having brunch with my friend. And and she said, oh, I'm having brunch. And she sent a photo of her brunch. And I was like, I said to him, uh, oh, you should just say that like you wish you'd gone out for brunch with her instead of me. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, that's much better than what I said. And I was, I said, <laughs> and then I said, what did you say? And he said, oh, I thought I said that I thought your brunch looked rubbish. <laughs> and you're just like, that's just not a... Like, that's such a random thing it's not even it's, like a flirty come down it's yeah, just like yeah, you just made like, bad food choices yeah, yeah totally it's just like you're this is not going to end actually it did end well he met his, met his wife but uh, so oh, it, well. did, it, it did work out well in the end but I can only assume he got better yeah. over time maybe she found it endearing yeah. <laughs> or knew that he had high high brunch standards which is also yeah, yeah. if you like brunch then yeah status signal yeah I was also wondering um, I read this book by Aziz Sanzari, who's a comedian. Oh, yeah. Um, he wrote, a, it's more a sociological than a psychological book mm. called Modern Romance about how dating is changing in mm-hmm. modern times because of social media and changing cultural norms. But um, he was saying that, uh, I, this was written a few years ago, I think things might have changed slightly now, but initially Tinder was considered a very superficial uh, platform because you just look a picture of a person and then decide yes or no and then try to find out more about them. But his argument was that um, people always do that. So when you first enter a room, often on first glance, you'll see someone and think, okay, they're attractive, they're not, and then change your behaviour to... Yeah, I mean, it's just a different type of sort of first impression. I mean, I think there's... I think there's just always a lot of alarm about new technology and how new technology's been applied. You know, like when I was a kid, it was, you know, video nasties and horror movies on, on, on video was, was going to rot the nation's youth's brains then computer games and now it seems to be you know social media and things like that mm. um, there's a guy down, a lab down in Oxford, Amy Orban uh, or sorry, Amy Orban and, uh, and Andrew Shabilsky who've been doing a lot of work looking at things like whether or not use of use of social media, screen time and all of these things have any negative effect on you know, well-being and things and I think they find that actually eating potatoes has a bigger negative effect on uh, <laughs> that That was their control one of their control conditions, that has a bigger negative effect on young people's well-being than things like social media online dating and things So. Oh wow, that's very interesting. So I think it is just one of these things that uh, you know, it's, it's new and people are immediately, or some people are immediately suspicious about it. But just as you point out, you know, it's not really, it's not really that new. Yeah. Um, there was a thing, I was, you know, just when you mentioned this, sort of sociology and things, you know, my, my background's in psychology, Lisa's background's more in, in sort of biology and um, our lab's kind of a mixture of, of, of people that do that with a, a sort of a smattering of kind of computer science people as well. But... Um, I was reading a thing, uh, a, so- a sociology and demography uh, paper the other day that was talking about how there's this kind of theory that sex is getting cheaper in 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 the context in terms of sort of biological markets. Not actually people pay less for it, but that you know there's more sex. People are having sex earlier. Um, 
and things like that. And actually, the evidence seems to be really weak for that kind of mm. idea. Um, men in particular seem to be having sex less often and later uh, than, than than they were some time ago. So, yeah. you know, and I, I think that, again, is a kind of pointing towards this idea that, you know, um, you know, just because just because of online dating and things like that, and 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 it's easier to reach out to people than it has been. But that's that's not the same as saying people are necessarily going to make bad choices. Yeah, uh, I think it's a different kind of intimacy as well. So some people may feel they may feel very emotionally intimate with someone, even if they've never met them, which yeah. is a different maybe before the actual physical closeness of being with someone which had to happen for you to be able to be emotionally mm-hmm. intimate with them because you had to be in the same room or that kind of thing may have led to different kind of situations and relationships than what's available to people now yeah but yeah yeah it's interesting change do you find much of a variation between people of different ages uh, in, in terms, terms of what, of what they're attracted. attractive yeah yeah i mean um yeah pretty much one of the things we find is that um I mean, an obvious one is that things in the face to do with age, um, people, older people respond differently to than younger people. Okay. Um, so, you know, characteristics that make the person look a little bit older, older people tend to be more positive about those than younger people are. Mm-hmm. Um, in both sexes, youth tends to be, tends to be, uh, tends to be preferred. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, what people are attracted to it does seem to sort of change change over the lifespan. Where we've done the most kind of work has been looking at changes around sort of puberty. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this kind of theory that around puberty, you know, as sex hormones increase, um, that you'll see uh, face preferences and mate preferences suddenly become much more kind of adult-like. Um Whereas actually what we tend to see is that it's not a kind of... It's, it's much more gradual than that and they seem to emerge um, before puberty. So, you know, I think I think that's also moving... Trying to move... So I think those data are kind of moving our understanding of attractiveness away from it being a kind of mating-driven kind of behaviour towards something that might just be more about sort of social interaction and things in general. Mm. You know, we tend to think about attraction in terms of sexual and romantic attraction, but it might just be more about, um, you know, it might be that attractiveness judgments are, are, are primarily being driven by, you know, things that you just need to know about or judgments you need to make about people to be able to interact with them well, regardless of, of, of whether or not that's a sort of... Uh, a sexual interaction or a romantic one or something more like um you know sharing food or deciding yeah. if they're trustworthy or not do you find that people tend as well to uh do you ask them to rate i assume uh trustworthiness and yeah we're, we're doing potential. a lot of work at the moment on um on trustworthy so there's a, a model of kind of how people judge faces that suggests that really when people are judging faces, they're really just but judging them on two different dimensions. One, that's kind of trustworthiness. You know, do you think this person wants to do you harm or good? Mm-hmm. And the other dimension being dominance, which is, you know, if this person wanted to... It's basically physical strength. Like, if this person wanted to inflict harm on you, could they? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a guy, Alex Todorov, um, out at Princeton in the US, has, has done some work pointing like supporting that kind of model it's really kind of his model 
Um, and we replicated it very straightforwardly in the UK. But when we did it in China, we found a slightly different pattern of results. We found okay. that we found that this sort of trustworthiness dimension was still there, but instead of um, a sort of strength or physical dominance dimension, it was more about kind of social status. Okay. Um, and sort of social status and intelligence. Um, so there's this there's this guy Chris Chartier uh, in the states who became very disillusioned at the state of kind of his area in social psychology and how you know it was just lots of little research studies uh, so he went for a run and was thinking about what he could do to make it better mm-hmm. um and he came back from his run and thought you know i'm gonna I'm, he's very active on twitter um and he said you know i'm gonna tweet something and say does anyone want to get together and we'll all work we can all try and work on some bigger projects together a bit like and he said, you know, it would be nice to do it like, you know, CERN, the big physics laboratory where they all work together. Yeah. We do like a CERN for psychology. And he went to put his kid to bed and came back and his Twitter just totally blown up with people going, yeah, we'll do that. Um, so me and Lisa, and so they said, well, okay, let, let's have people propose projects. So me and Lisa proposed the first project to be chosen to be run through this scheme. Mm-hmm. They've now got like 400 or so labs signed up. Wow, that's um, amazing. So it's to basically look and see across, and the labs are from all over the world. Um, so it's basically to look and see if this kind of dominance valence model. See, we know it doesn't replicate in China, mm-hmm. um, or it, it partially does, but but part, partly doesn't. Mm-hmm. So it's really to look and see whether or not that partner results um, where it does hold up and where it doesn't hold up. And I think that's where um, that's where the most exciting developments are going to come from, I think. It's yeah, like lots of researchers kind of working together um, mm-hmm. to do this. It's been good fun as well. Like, uh, you know, me and Lisa have been working on this for quite a while and then you work with people with different skills, different expertise, different backgrounds, different stages of their career and stuff. Mm. Um, so as well as, you know, that, that makes the project better. Um, but also like learning quite a lot about how to do my own work better as well. So yeah. it's been it's been really really rewarding. Are you expecting any places to have a major difference to the research findings that you found here? Yeah, well, I mean we're not re- we haven't made any very strong predictions about about what we'll expect to see. Mm-hmm. Um, I think and one of the things that we're trying to do it's really a kind of a descriptive project. In a lot of ways, we just see what we see. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what we're planning to do is to release um, details about the data before they're published um, so that other people can pre-register um, predictions about what cross-cultural variables might be, you know, because it might be, you know, countries differ in things like gender equality, homicide risk, you know, you can imagine mm-hmm. that maybe the dominant strength things more important in countries with... Uh, with with high homicide risk or something like that, mm. um, so so yeah so so we're kind of hoping that we'll create this resource. I think it'll be an interesting project in and of itself, but it also create a resource that a lot of people can can do sort of further work on. Yeah, uh, but yeah, it's been, it's been fun. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. Do you use a mix of faces from different ethnic backgrounds? Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, that was one of the things that we um, the, the original work. The work we did in China was done with all Chinese faces. The mm-hmm. work that had been done in the UK and the States was done with all white faces. So we've uh, used a much more, as well as 
having greater diversity in the raters, we've also gone for greater diversity in the um, in the faces. So it's a it's, it's a real mix of ethnicities, mm. um, and it'll be interesting to look and see how how you know if there's own race biases and things that play into that. Yeah. So it should be a good data data set for. I think people will be analysing it for for quite a, quite a long time into the future. Yeah, definitely. Once we're done with it. Do you try to model the? I'm assuming you do some digital manipulation of the features to yeah. make them more masculine. Do you base them on real faces? Yeah, so the way the way that we... It's one of the things, actually, I think sometimes people, particularly in the media, often misunderstand about about the work on masculinity, femininity, is that it's not... Because you get people saying, oh, but it's all... Isn't masculinity or femininity a sort of social construct? And it, to some extent it is. Um, and particularly the way it's often used in sort of common common parlance. The way we experimentally manipulate them, we're not really... We're manipulating something more like sexual dimorphism, which just means actual physical anatomical differences between male and female. Mm-hmm. Um, so the classic sex, example of sexual dimorphism in the non-human literature is uh, peacocks, the male of the species, they're bright and colourful, and peahens, the female of the species, are really... Uh, they're not bright and colourful at all. They're like mm-hmm. little brown, inconsequential looking things. Um, so the way that we manipulate masculinity, femininity is we use computer graphic techniques to make an average of, say, 100 young adult male faces and 100 young adult female faces. Mm-hmm. And then the software can really just analyse it. it. It defines the shapes by sort of 200 landmark points on each face. Mm-hmm. And just like any point on a graph has got an X and a Y coordinate, any point on the face has got an X and a Y coordinate. Right. So it just moves, you know, it can say, well, for every all of these 200 points or so, it knows what the differences are between male and female. And they're really quite, like, they're not physically big differences. They look quite small. Um, but when you manipulate them, even by just a small amount along those dimensions, it has a really pronounced knock-on effect onto perception. Hmm, that's really interesting. But we've been kind of moving away from the computer graphics stuff recently. Um, they're really good for telling you what information people can use to form impressions about faces. So, you know, if you masculinise and feminise a version of a woman's face and then you say, which one looks more trustworthy? I'll pick the feminine version. Which one looks more attractive? Most people pick the feminine version. Which one looks more physically strong? Most people pick the the masculinized version. But that's when the faces don't differ on any other dimensions. But of course, faces differ. Two people's faces differ on tons and tons of different dimensions, not not just the one you're manipulating. So what we're finding actually is that although those experimental manipulations, you get very, very robust effects and you get really strong effects, they don't translate very well to judgments of even static faces under under uh, other conditions when they vary on on different dimensions. Right. Um, so femininities, you know, you, you often read in the literature that femininity is synonymous. It's it's literally the same thing as attractiveness in female faces. Right. Um, when you experimentally manipulate it, that's what you see. But if you measure femininity from women's faces, so we've just finished a study where we rated had 600 women's faces rated for attractiveness and we can measure femininity using the same sort of techniques that we use to manipulate it 
And there we find that, you know, when women's spaces vary on other dimensions, like, you know, skin tone or whatever, that femininity is actually a pretty rubbish predictor of, 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 of women's attractiveness. So I think there's been a real over I think it's a problem that so much of the research in the past is focused on these experimental techniques. Yeah. I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's unsurprising given that most of the people working on it are experimental psychologists. Yeah. But, uh, but when you talk to people like the ecological psychologists or the anthropologists or the sociologists, um, they've long had concerns about the kind of ecological validity of these computer graphic manipulations and I think our new work's suggesting that we probably should have been listening to them for, for longer than we have been. <laughs> Even just thinking about sort of fashion changes to do with facial presentation, so yeah, like, like eyebrows. Yeah, yeah, that's the big one. Because uh, I think in the 2000s it was very... Uh, considered very attractive to have an, a quite a thin, for women anyway, Yeah, yeah. a thin we, line, but now more recently, um, much thicker brows. eyebrows, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like, um, yeah. And I mean, you do see these, um, and, and also, you know, not, not just in, in, in sort of grooming, you know, because that's something that you could, you could sort of, well, you can manipulate. But I think if you, you know, even if you look at how body shit, you know, what, I, media portrayal of ideals of body shape, particularly for women, mm-hmm. um, have changed over time. Yeah, it's quite. Although I say particularly for women, actually, if you look at um, if you look at like the Star Wars figures from when, when I was a kid, like Han Solo and and Luke Skywalker were pretty pretty wimpy kind of guys. Whereas if you look at the new version of their of their action figures, they're like. Totally really yeah. yeah. Now lots of actors. I'm I'm sure it was, you know, it existed before, but mm. in the fifties and things, they had to go through some semi physical training. But mostly it was for function. But now actors in any role at all get like, especially superhero movies. It's insane yeah, yeah. the transformations they go through to build like the the super yeah. Superman aesthetic. It's, it's pretty amazing when you think of like someone like Christian Bale, how much he's changed his body shape for different yeah and for is, different I roles think, and for his this new i think partly it's prosthetics in the new part but even so like he definitely looks like he's been he's pay, playing uh dick cheney in the new film vice mm-hmm. um and you can tell he's like been hitting the pies quite hard yeah in order to bulk up for that yeah um but then in other ones you see him uh you know go back to american psycho and he's 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 pretty ripped you know yeah and in another movie didn't he uh, by the machinist uh, yeah where he dropped Pounds and pounds and pounds and pounds. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he was like emaciated in that one. Yeah. yeah. Do you find a massive uh, difference in ages as well between that kind of thing? So maybe people who were, you could say, in their sexual prime in the two thousands or something, they'd have more of a preference for the fashions that existed then. It's not really something that we've 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 looked at. We've looked at kind of those kind of like experiential effects mm-hmm. on 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 preferences. So. You can induce preferences quite quite easy, quite quickly in the lab just by showing people faces of a certain type. You can make them find those faces more normal, and as a consequence of that, that makes more them attractive. makes them more attractive. Mm. Um, and we've done other work looking at kind of like imprinting on parental characteristics and things like that. It would be really really interesting to look at um, to look at how. So if I've understood you right, you're talking about, you know, like people who when they first became sexually active, 
what they encountered then. Mm. Yeah, that would be that would be a really cool thing to look at. We're I... involved in a project with some sex researchers over in at Queen's University in Canada, uh-huh. looking at um, there's there's a theory there's there's theory and there's some evidence for it from non-human animals and a little bit of evidence for it in 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 women. And we're trying to do a, a bigger study to look at this that the that where women are in their menstrual cycle when they first encounter a particular male might influence how attracted they are to to that male in the longer term. Okay. Um, so the idea is that if 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 women encounter a guy for the first time while they're ovulating, then they might be more positively disposed to to uh, to that guy in the future. Mm. Um, than would otherwise be the case. I'm pretty sceptical. The evidence, the studies that have been done so far have been been a pretty pretty small scale. Uh, But yeah, I mean, it remains to be seen if it happens or not. Yeah. Uh, But it's an interesting idea. Um, But like I said, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm sceptical about it. But... uh, Yeah, I wonder as well when uh, people's preferences in terms of how old they are as well kind of solidify because there's the myth of well personally i believe it's a myth that the, everyone has a a type yeah yeah um, in terms of personality and f- facial appearance and physical appearance but from i've the little reading i've done about mm. it it seems to be like people have cognitive biases which is when they're in a relationship they go no this person I'm with now is definitely my type and looking back all of my past relationships were in some way like this person now yeah we've we've written a bit about that um we haven't done much work on it we've done work on whether or not you can predict what a person's partner will be like by the type of faces they say they find attractive and there we find that you can and that could be that people like it could be exactly what you're saying it could be that people are deciding what, uh, you know, they've got a type. So that comes through in how they rate faces and it comes through in their partner. Or it could be that, like, you know, once you're in a relationship, you kind of say, yeah, that's the that's that's what I was looking for all along kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, and we've, we've, we've got, we've seen, there's some evidence for both. Uh, there's some evidence. So there's a group over in um, Göttingen in Germany, that I visited in October, uh, Lars Penka, who used, used to be based in Edinburgh, actually, before he moved back to Germany, and Tanya Gerlach. They've done work showing that, uh, you know, if you predict, if you get, you can look at women's mate preferences at this point in time and then look at what partners they then go on to get mm-hmm. uh, and that their mate preferences in the lab seem to predict their partner choices in the future. Mm. So that suggests that there is something about having a type. Um, but then there's other work that we've done that suggests that, uh, you know, like, oh, this is not a nice way to say this, that, that, that more more people who are themselves more, more attractive, particularly women who are themselves more attractive, um, are better able to get the type of partners that they, that they would like. Hmm. Um, and that makes sense, you know, it's just a kind of, it's not a very nice way to talk about these things, but um, people often talk in, when they're talking about relationships and and mating, talk about biological markets, which is just basically uh, you know you've kind of got a mate, you kind of got a market value, yeah, um, and that dictates to some extent what uh, 
And your market value is not just determined by what you look like or anything. It's also, you know, it's how nice you are and, you know, how much money you've got and, and all kinds of things. Um, but yeah, that does seem to sort of play into what sort of partners you can get. And, uh, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, it was kind of sobering when, uh, you know, you test a bunch of men and women and then get the partners into the lab and you're like, oh, it was pretty clear. Even pretty clear from the analyses we did that the, the more attractive people are more like, and particularly uh, more attractive women, were, were much more likely to end up with uh, a better fit between their type in inverted commas and their, their actual partner. Mm. I think in some ways people get quite distressed when they see couples who they think are mismatched in terms of their physical attractiveness. Like yeah, yeah. They... It, it's, it's, it's quite... It is quite striking when you when, but it's two things. That are, it's quite striking when you see couples like that. But just like you're saying, like some people get really quite an, quite annoyed about it. Yeah. Um, which I find quite weird. It's always interesting if you're like walking down Socky Hall Street or something on a Friday or Saturday night, and you see couples like that, that that are kind of mismatched in terms of attractiveness. And then if you once you pass them, if you turn around and you just see like just how many groups of people walk past them and they'll like as soon as they're past them like nudge them and nudge their pal and be like oh, did you see that yeah. you know like it's uh did you see them what a weird couple yeah yeah it, it is really strange that um and i think that is because people are so you know intuitively aware of of these kind of market forces mm. and you see these things that kind of kind of buck the trend then uh people can't help but speculate but yeah i've noticed that, that it's not it goes beyond people wondering why like people genuinely seem to it seems to cause them a front yeah <laughs> maybe it's kind of a a je- not a jealousy necessarily but uh they feel that they've worked in with their own market value and have had to accept it's, things yeah. that maybe they are unhappy with and then when they see two people who aren't paying yeah. attention to those rules it's I funny think. though you really get the impression for some people it really kind of rocks their world yeah yeah like it's that uh, it's curious yeah i did a little um mini experiment myself where i did a face symmetry test online ah. and i was going to ask uh what your findings about facial symmetry are because i've heard that it's supposedly biologically a marker of good genetics yeah so yeah, so the idea, the sort of theory is, and you see it in, the theory comes from, not from from human studies, it really comes from studies of mate choice and mate preferences in non-human animals, and particularly from uh, sort of birds and even insects. And the idea is that, you know, we're kind of genetically programmed to develop symmetrically, mm-hmm. um, with a few exceptions, you know, heart tends to be on, on, on one side. Um, but, you know, our fingers generally... Are, should be the same, roughly the same length on each on 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 each hand and things. Um, but the environment and illnesses and things kind of impinge on us, and we all grow up a little bit wonky. Um, some of us grow up wonkier than others, and the theory is that those are the ones that um, those are the ones that uh, the people that grow up more asymmetric have either being exposed to more illnesses or they're better uh, uh, they're less well able to withstand illnesses okay so the that's where the idea that symmetry might be some sort of marker of uh, the ability to maintain good health mm-hmm. so that, that's it's good to have a healthy partner um and it's particularly good to have a healthy partner if you're going to have kids because it means you're more likely to have healthy kids that's the in in a short 
short version, that's the kind of story. Mm-hmm. And it's true that when you experimentally manipulate symmetry in faces, so you make a face slightly more perfectly symmetric, it tends to look better than the original version. Mm-hmm. Um, if you make a, if you exaggerate the natural asymmetries in a face, because everyone's face is asymmetric to some extent, um, then it very 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 quickly becomes quite quite uh, almost freakish looking when you mm. when you exaggerate them. I um, found I definitely have a I think my right side is my best side, but my left side when it's flipped makes me look like an ogre. Yeah, <laughs> the ones so when you when you uh, when you there's two ways you can make faces. You can manipulate symmetry in faces. One way is to like the way you have. You split it down the middle, mm-hmm. mirror flip them and stick them together. Mm-hmm. That way, that's how people did the early work on symmetry and found that symmetry didn't actually seem to matter much and actually might even be, in some of the studies, came out as, as unattractive. And the reason for that is that um, when you mirror flip them and stick them back together it gives the faces kind of unnatural proportions. Yeah. So if you do it with... So my, my brother broke his nose when he was a kid, <laughs> and if you do it with my brother's face, then one of the one of the versions comes out with, like, three nostrils because <laughs> his, his face is so sort of wiped across his, his, his face. Right. Um, what you can, The other way you can do it is take the face and just use computer graphics to um, warp it into a perfectly symmetric shape, and that keeps the proportions natural. Yeah. And there you do see a slight advantage um, for symmetry. Um, people tend to choose the perfectly symmetric version over the asymmetric version about 60% of the time or something mm. like that. So it's a bit of a slight bias, but not a big one. But symmetry is a really good example of one where um, a trait where you get reliable effects when you manipulate it, but when you measure it and there's lots of other stuff going on with the face... Um, it doesn't seem to actually matter so much. Yeah, it's very... Um, when you consider how attractive a person is, it, I I mean, these experiments are really fascinating and reveal a lot about yeah. uh, how we feel about different people and first impressions, but it's never going to be just one person's face Ooh, or just their face that you interact with. So yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why we've been moving more towards, like, increasingly towards trying to look at the sort of full... nearly said to full package. <laughs> but the, uh, you know, like, looking at how people integrate voice body face and things like because just like you're saying you know Mm. it's um you end up you end up studying if you study faces or you study voices or you study bodies you end up knowing a lot about how people perceive these kind of artificial stimuli but not very much about how people pull all that kind of information together Mm. um and particularly you know a lot of so as a consequence, we know a lot about how people perceive standardised faces with neutral expressions and direct gaze, but it's only recently we've started to learn a little bit about how people integrate information about gaze direction, mm. emotions, and all the stuff that we know is important. Um, and because we knew it was important, people controlled for it, but because we controlled for it, we now don't actually know very much about how people use it. Yeah. So uh, so I think that those sort of moving... And, and developments in computer graphics and social robotics and things like that um, really kind of allow people to do this work uh, in a way with a level of sort of realism that, that, that you weren't able to even sort of three or four years ago. Yeah. What does your research show about makeup and uh, kind of more... Uh, 
less natural, let's say, like facial features that people might try and accentuate? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's so some of the things we find with makeup are that, like, it does seem to, it, there's always been an argument that it, that women use it to um, exaggerate their attractiveness around ovulation. Mm-hmm. That seems to definitely not be a robust finding. It's there in the... Well, actually, there's actually debate about whether or not it's even there in the original research that, that claimed to show it. Um, but it certainly doesn't sort of replicate. And there was also a lot of work being done on um, suggesting that women might use it to either uh, enhance or obscure cues to their health okay. in faces. And again, that one doesn't seem to stand up particularly well either. So it, I think a, a lot of these ideas that makeups exaggerating existing biological signals um, don't seem to be sort of standing up to much scrutiny. Mm-hmm. But where where the what makeup does seem to do is to exaggerate um, sex differences in in facial appearance. Okay. So um, eye makeup and brow makeup and 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 brow shaping seem to exaggerate uh, existing differences in facial contrast in the eye region um and in fact actually there's a guy alex jones coming up from swansea next month to give a talk uh, on mostly that okay. so actually what he studies um is 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 the role makeup plays and the other thing that really comes out of his role his his work is that makeup might play more of a role in um signalling personality and things to other women than it does about attracting men. Yeah, I have a friend who says, uh, I used to wear makeup to dates because mm. I thought it would make me look like my best self, but I've noticed that the only people that ever notice when I'm wearing makeup are girls, mm. and they'll compliment me on my eyeshadow and be like, oh, that's really great technique, but the, the, the men or the boys never actually notice... Uh, whether she's wearing it or not. So that's what that's that's pretty much what his work shows is that the effect of makeup, comparing makeup, you know, subtle makeup, heavy makeup, and no makeup, has a much stronger effect on uh, women's perceptions of 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 of, of women mm. than it does on men's perceptions of women. Mm. But then I wonder how that translates into lesbian couples because maybe then that's yeah, that's a good question. Element. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, I know it's something that he'd, he'd like to look at. Um, I mean, it's one of the things that um, it is one of the big gaps in the literature is just generally how uh, a lot of the research is quite sort of heteronormative yeah. and, and heterocentric. Partly that's comes from the sort of theories it's come from, which tend to be about reproduction, but that's that's really changing in the last sort of couple of years. You know, we've published a few things now on... Uh, on, um, on, on, on looking at, at, at non-straight people. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's even work coming out now on the, uh, you know, on, on the kind of third gender from Samoa, the Fafini, who mm-hmm. are uh, an, a, the, a colleague Tony Little's been doing. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's one of the things that if I could have my time again and go back and do all my research again, I, would, I wish I'd I wish I'd sort of taken on board. I wish it, it's, it's a shame when you look back on it and you see how sort of heteronormative so much of the literature is um often for just sort of practical reasons mm. um but yeah it's, it's we've got a few projects running in the lab at the moment looking to see how well one of the things i'm particularly interested in is a lot of these kind of 
what you see is well established, written about well established sex differences in mate preferences. Looking to see how those play out when you look at queer participants, I think would be really yeah, interesting. Yeah, especially I think transgender participants. Yeah, would that would be, be great. very interesting to look yeah. at because I wonder whether there's any way transgender uh, people can not select but can uh, encourage certain traits to develop because some people can be transgender without oh, yeah, yeah. or identify as transgender without hormone therapy, whereas others will choose to go yeah. through hormone therapy to look more like uh, the gender they feel themselves to be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think these are all these are all really important topics. And, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of crazy that, that, that they've not been... They've not really had the full recognition in the literature that they they really sort of should have. Yeah. Uh, well, unfortunately, it can change going forward. Hopefully. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Onwards and upwards. It will be really interesting to see as well with your research, uh, your global research at the moment, how mm-hmm. um, kind of more cultural changes and globalization may contrast to previous literature as well. Yeah, I mean, there's so there's yeah, we've got colleagues that have done a little bit of work on that that have. Um, that have found that sort of industrialization of and, and sort of urbanization might be bit, might be a better word of regions that uh, that when you look at sort of small scale societies, hunter gatherer societies and things, they're really not that interested or or engaged with appearance. Okay. Um, partly because they don't have to individuate people so much because there there's not that many of them. Yeah. So, so there is there is a kind of theory emerging. I don't. Think, I think it's a really nice idea. I don't think the data are, are t- terribly convincing yet, um, but I think it is a really engaging idea. This idea that um, this kind of focus on appearance and things like attractiveness and 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 make and make, using faces to make first impressions about people might be a kind of byproduct of moving to larger scale societies hmm. where that's more important because you don't know everybody. Yeah, um, I think that is a really interesting interesting idea sort of uh, to look at something I'd be really keen to work on in the future thank you so much for talking to me yeah thanks for your time cheers yeah and I'll uh, I can link I'll link some of your research below so people can read about it oh dear and, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, and maybe sometime in future when you get more data about the research you're doing you can come back and tell us yeah come back and, 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 and get you up to speed yeah great thanks for your time there cheers The Psych Soccer Clock podcast was created by Amelia Hilton in association with the Glasgow University Psychology Society. This conversation was recorded by Amelia Hilton and Professor Ben Jones. It was produced by Amelia Hilton and edited by Jack Harding, with original music by Jack Harding. It was recorded in the University of Glasgow School of Psychology and Neuroscience Faculty Speech Lab. 